It's the simplest shape you can draw. All you need are two intersecting lines. You can find it almost anywhere. A street intersection, a chessboard, the grid of a multi-paned window. It's the shape of the cross. And as far as we can tell, humans have been drawing it for one reason or another since practically the beginning. In the history of art and iconography, it takes many different forms. It can look like a capital T or even an X. In all these forms, the cross has been, for the last 2,000 years, the defining symbol of Christianity. No matter the denomination or liturgy, there is the cross. On top of the steeple of a Baptist church, dangling from the end of a Catholic rosary, held by the saint in an Orthodox icon. In 200 AD, the early church father Tertullian wrote, In all our travels and movements, in all our coming in and going out, in putting on our shoes, at the bath, at the table, in lighting our candles, in lying down, in sitting down, whatever employment occupies us, we mark our foreheads with the sign of the cross. The ordinary, everyday life of a Christian is defined by the cross. That simple shape, that powerful symbol. But what does it mean? Hi friends, Stephen here. Easter has come, but this year it finds us in a strange and frightening time. In the middle of a crisis, when we would normally reach for one another, we're instead cut off from the direct experience of community. And on this day of all days, the day of the cross that defines our Christian lives, I'd love nothing more than to be gathered with all of you than simply recording this at home. But we are in the wilderness, and we have to learn to celebrate Easter in exile. So today we have a podcast instead of a gathering. In a way, it won't be too different from how we normally spend a good Friday morning at Granville Chapel. We'll listen to scripture, we'll pray, we'll reflect on Jesus' crucifixion. And since we'll be by ourselves, some of us in community houses, or in family homes, or alone in apartments, I'd encourage you, wherever you're spending this quarantine season, to listen to this podcast in a spirit of retreat, the way you would spend your devotional or quiet time. Find a place and a posture where you can rest in God's presence. There will be times when I'll ask you to pause the podcast and quietly pray on your own. At the end of this guided devotional, there will be an invitation to celebrate communion. Now, this is going to seem weird, because it is weird. We're meant to be together, to share bread and wine as the body of Christ. But we have to celebrate Easter in exile 
and I would rather celebrate it partially than not celebrate it at all. So get together whatever you need, and I'll pray for us before we take it. And now I'll open up our Good Friday devotional with a prayer by Walter Brueggemann from his book, Awed to Heaven, Rooted in Earth, published by Fortress Press. It's titled, Like an Endless Falling. Would you join me in prayer? Dear God, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. We are no strangers to the falling apart. We perpetrate against the center of our lives, and on some days it feels like an endless falling, like a deep threat, like rising water, like ruthless wind. But you, you in the midst, you back in play, you rebuking and silencing and ordering, you creating still restfulness in the very eye of the storm. You be our center. Cause us not to lie about the danger. Cause us not to resist your good order. Be our God. Be the God you promised. And we will be among those surely peaceable in your order. We pray in the name of the one through whom all things hold together. Amen. Let's turn to scripture. I'll be reading from the Gospel of Luke, and we'll pause for prayer as we go along. As they led Jesus away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, and they laid the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A great number of the people followed him, and among them were women who were beating their breasts and wailing for him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are surely coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Friends, on this Good Friday, I wanted to give us space to cry to God in prayer, because we're hurting. The world is hurting, and it's good to name the pain and give God our lament. And God groans and laments with us. To start us off, I'll read a piece of verse by Anne Steele, an 18th century Baptist hymn writer. When it's done, take time to pause and pray on your own or out loud as a family and honestly mourn before God. 
Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. While hope revives, though pressed with fears, and I can say, my God, beneath thy feet I spread my cares and pour my woes abroad. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone can heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. But oh, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call thee mine. The springs of comfort seem to fail, and all my hopes decline. Yet, gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust. And still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. Hast thou not bid me seek thy face? And shall I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? No, still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. Thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. Let's continue reading scripture. Two others also, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the Skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by, watching. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, 
Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. We're going to enter now into a time of confession, praying together our repentance and turning away from all that we've done wrong. And even though we're separated by distance, we'll make this a responsive prayer. When you hear me say, Lord, in your mercy, you can join me with, hear our prayer. Let us pray. Most holy and merciful Father, we confess to you and to one another and to the whole communion of saints in heaven and on earth that we have sinned by our own fault in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not forgiven others as we have been forgiven. We have been deaf to your call to serve as Christ served us. We have not been true to the mind of Christ. We have grieved your Holy Spirit. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We confess to you, Lord, all our past unfaithfulness, the pride, hypocrisy, and impatience of our lives, our self-indulgent appetites and ways, and our exploitation of other people, our anger at our own frustration, and our envy of those more fortunate than ourselves. Our overpowering love of worldly goods and comforts and our dishonesty in daily life and work. Our negligence in prayer and worship and our failure to commend the faith that is in us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Accept our repentance, Lord, for the things we have done, for our blindness to human need and suffering, and our indifference to injustice and cruelty, for all false judgments, for uncharitable thoughts toward our neighbors, and for our prejudice and contempt toward those who differ from us, for our waste and pollution of your creation, and our lack of concern for those who come after us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Create in us clean hearts, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and uphold us 
with a willing spirit. We confess all this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And friends, if you need to, feel free to pause now and pray your own confession to God. We'll return to scripture for a final portion. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. And when all the crowds who had gathered there for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. But all his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. They stood at a distance, watching these things. And in our own way, across time and halfway around the globe, we too stand at a distance and hear again the story of Easter. We look at the cross, and however much we know about sin and atonement and salvation, we can still look at it and wonder. What does it mean for Jesus to be defined by the cross? And what does it mean that the cross forever marks his church? I'd like to reflect now on both of those questions. John Baer, in his beautiful little book, Becoming Human, points out that Jesus reveals himself only through the cross. The disciples were with him all along the road, witnessing miracles and hearing parables. But it is only when the crucified and risen Lord opens the scriptures and breaks bread that they begin to understand. He writes, Christ does not show himself to be God by being almighty, as we tend to think of this as moving mountains, throwing lightning bolts, and so on. It is rather by the all-too-human act of dying, in the particular manner that he does. Death is, in point of fact, the only thing that all men and women have in common, from the beginnings of the world onwards, throughout all regions and cultures of the world. And thus Christ reveals what it is to be God 
through the only thing that we have in common. He does this not simply by dying, for that would merely have been a capitulation of God, the end. Rather, he does it by the way that he has died. It is because he conquers death by his death that he enables all men and women also to use their own mortality to come to life in him. As I've spent my days at home, most of it in a rather small bedroom, my thoughts turn again and again to Julian of Norwich, an anchorite in medieval England. Alone in her cell, in an era when plague was common, all she had that linked her to the outside world were two tiny windows, one faced outdoors through which she could speak with visitors who came for spiritual guidance, the other faced into the church where she could witness the service. She fell seriously ill and came to the point of death. As he administered the last rites, the priest held up a cross, and Julian had a vision of Jesus's suffering body that, when she'd recovered, brought her to meditate on the cross and Jesus's love. She wrote, I saw that he is to us everything that is good and comforting for our help. He is our clothing that out of love enwraps us and enfolds us, embraces us and wholly encloses us, surrounding us for tender love so that he can never leave us. And in this vision, he also showed a little thing, the size of a hazelnut, lying in the palm of my hand, as it seemed to me, and it was round as a ball. I looked at it with my mind's eye and thought, what can this be? And the answer came, it is all that is made. I wondered how it could last, for it seemed to me so small that it might have disintegrated suddenly into nothingness. And I was answered in my understanding. It lasts, and it always will, because God loves it. And in the same way, everything has its being through the love of God. And later, Julian wrote, I wanted to look up from the cross, and I did not dare for I well knew that while I contemplated the cross, I was safe and secure. Then I thought my reason suggested to me, look up to heaven to his father. And then I saw clearly, with the faith that I felt, that there was nothing between the cross and heaven which could have distressed me. Either I must look up, or else reply. I answered inwardly with all my soul's strength and said, No, I cannot, for you are my heaven. For I would rather have remained in that pain until judgment day 
than come to heaven in any other way than by him. For I well knew that he who held me bound so sorely would unbind me when he wished. So I was taught to choose Jesus for my heaven, whom I saw only in pain at that time. No other heaven pleased me but Jesus, who will be my bliss when I come there. And this has always been a comfort to me, that I chose Jesus for my heaven, through his grace, in all this time of suffering and sorrow. And that has been a lesson to me, that I should do so evermore, to choose only Jesus for my heaven, in both happiness and sorrow. It was her confidence in that choice that moved Julian of Norwich to write, even more famously, that all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Jesus, in his death, gives life to the whole world. In the gospel, the way to the empty tomb is through the cross. The way to joy is through pain. Death becomes the road to life. He enters into our pain, and he makes it the means of our redemption. He heals and he suffers in the same moment. We come to the cross, bringing our lament and our confession, all the wrong we have done and all the wrong done to us. And at the cross, Jesus responds by saying, I love you. And so the cross is more than the mechanism of salvation. It is the sign and symbol of his love. So what then does it mean that Jesus asks us to take up the cross? To follow him means to walk the path he did. And the path he walked led to Calvary. By the cross, we know who Jesus is. Therefore, we are people of the cross, because we're meant to love like Jesus. Saint Therese of Lisieux said, Love is repaid by love alone. Jesus asks us to take up the cross, to be marked by it and live its message, and in so doing, love the world. In this time when a pandemic spreads like wildfire, many have asked and written about what our Christian response should be. But I'm mindful of the fact that one of the legacies the church has given the world is the concept and practices of a robust healthcare system, the very system that is now our front line of defense. When a plague hit the Roman Empire in the second century, 
It was mainly Christians who nursed the afflicted, suffering with those who suffered, while the pagan doctors fled into the relative safety of the countryside. And two centuries later, Basil, the bishop of Caesarea, built one of the first hospitals in Europe. Throughout the Middle Ages, it was convents and monasteries who tended the people whose bodies needed healing. It is no accident that when nurses and doctors and technicians care for the sick, the injured, for those being born and those about to die, it happens most often under the sign of a red cross. I think about Simon of Cyrene, a passing stranger suddenly forced to carry Jesus's cross, and no doubt forever marked by the experience. I think about us, suddenly forced into the isolation of an anchorite, or put ourselves at risk because we're essential workers. I think about everyone suddenly infected with this disease, perhaps on the point of death, or needing treatment for other illnesses that hospitals can't currently provide. We are all, in some way or another, carrying a very real and very heavy cross. Psalm 126 says, May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seeds for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. Today, we lamented and confessed, because I believe strongly that the cross is a place to sow our weeping. It is tempting to run to a well-intentioned sedative to try to numb the pain of these days, to think that since we're Christians, we shouldn't be sad. But tears, as well as rain, water the earth and make it grow. And even Jesus, out of his love, wept. Those who sow their weeping at the cross, who are willing to take it up, are those who will be marked by the love of Jesus Christ. Everything will be okay, we say. We'll get through this. And we will. But what will it be like on the other side? Will we shrug and move on? Or will it be more like waking up from a long sleep? I want us to think about what this virus exposes, the weaknesses it brings to light. I want us to be humbled and recognize our own limits as creatures. I want us to notice the flaws in our economy and the chinks in our healthcare system's armor and the way that businesses treat their workers. I want us to take a long, hard look at what we value, 
how we live and who we love. And then, still bearing the cross of Christ, do something about it. I don't want everything to be okay. I don't want everything to go back to normal. I want everything to be better than it was before. One day, this will end, and we will go out with songs of joy. But let's also remember, in our rising and our lying down, in our coming in and going out, in our everyday lives, that we are people of the cross, the sign of God's love for a sick and hurting world. And now we come to what's probably the most difficult part of this Good Friday, at least for me, and probably for you as well. We have to share communion while apart. This is probably especially hard for you if you're living on your own right now, the only person in the room, eating and drinking with no one else. And if that's you, I want to say, you are not alone. Your church is with you. The Holy Spirit makes us one and we are in communion together. And most important of all, Jesus is with you. He lives in your heart and loves you. And even when it's just you, you are in communion with him. Not just when two or three are gathered. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we celebrate communion this Good Friday, we celebrate the forgiveness, mercy, and love of God. And as you eat the bread, remember, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And as you drink the cup, remember, this is the blood of Christ shed for your sins. These are the gifts of God for the people of God, the people of the cross, in times of joy as well as in times of trial. Let me pray for us. 
Dear Jesus, you eagerly desired to eat this Passover with us, hungry for our company, thirsty for our fellowship. We eagerly desire to, and know the ache of longing for things that we have sacrificed and for things that are not yet. You felt desire's piercing, jagged barb that cannot be pulled out, but only passed through, pressing deeper, turning longing into needing. You let desire pass through you, feeling every cut and tear, releasing blood and water that we might taste and see the end of all our need in you. You starve that we might be fed. You thirst that we might drink. You need that we might have. You feed us with yourself. And we thank you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jonathan and Lady have a song for us, and I invite you to listen while you celebrate communion.
God in flesh and blood, we're here for you. Bread of life, the love of God, our heavenly food. To the Father, to the Son, and to the Spirit be blessing To the Father, to the Son, and to the Spirit be blessing, honor, glory, power, might, and majesty. It is God who we encounter. It is God that we receive from this altar. From this altar, from this altar, we do believe. We do believe. And now, friends, it's time to close off this guided devotional. It's been hard for me to think that we've had to do this separately, but I hope you felt God's presence, the only refuge of our weary souls. I hope you've seen the cross and known Jesus's love. May it mark you for all your days. And now please receive this benediction. And if you'd like, you can hold out your hands in a posture of receiving. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, we pray you to set your passion, cross, and death between your judgment and our souls, now and in the hour of our death. Give mercy and grace to the living, pardon and rest to the dead. To your holy church, peace and concord, and to us sinners, everlasting life and glory. For with the Father and the Holy Spirit, you live and reign, one God, now and forever. Granville Chapel, 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Have a blessed Good Friday and a happy Easter.